After years of being in the wilderness, is it possible that a new coalition is emerging that could bring real power? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. In his insightful 2022 book, What It Took to Win, the eminent historian Michael Kazin scanned the history of the Democratic Party over the last 150 years, and he found that the one common thread to electoral victory is connecting with social movements. Without that on-the-ground social energy, the Democratic Party has often failed to inspire sufficiently to win at the polls. But latching on to powerful social movement, Kazin finds the Democratic Party has seen major victories. Being against the Republicans, for example, has rarely, if ever, been sufficient to win. And as 2024 begins, opposition to Trumpism is not nothing, but that movement has deeply and emotionally committed millions. The left needs some other, more creative way around mere electoral politics to connect with and perhaps undermine the working class roots of Trumpism. Our guest today, Raina Lipsitz, writing in The New Republic, points to a tremendous opportunity for Democrats should our party choose to take it. Her essay is titled The Emerging Coalition That Could Revitalize Our Politics. She observes that the left and labor haven't always seen eye to eye, but they may be on the verge of a fruitful reunion. Could a new labor movement, one not built or seen as the exclusive province of working class white men, reclaim power for workers across the board? End of her quote. Well, as a Democrat who desperately wants to see victories in 2024, my question is, will the party see the error of its ways that we had in 2016 when the party so blatantly sided with wealthy campaign contributors and so publicly abandoned the middle and thus lust? Will leadership come out strong for the revitalized and popular and more militant labor movement that we are seeing now? Oh, this is an opportunity I don't think we can afford to miss. Raina Lipsitz, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thanks for having me. Raina Lipsitz has written about gender, politics, and culture for a variety of publications, including Al Jazeera, America, The Appeal, The Atlantic, The Conversationalist, The Nation, and The New Republic, among other publications. In 2016, the National Women's Political Caucus honored her with an Exceptional Merit in Media Award for her outstanding work on issues of importance to women and girls. And I would suggest all of us. She's the author of The Rise of a New Left, How Young Radicals Are Shaping the Future of American Politics. Well, again, thanks for so much for being with us. 2023 has been a remarkable year for many reasons, not the least of which was the impressive number of strikes and labor actions rather successful. Contrasted with the overriding sentiment of today's Republicans, which defines freedom as simply the freedom of the super wealthy banks and corporations to reap historically financial rewards without regard to environmental or effects on workers who actually make the widgets, it does seem that public sympathy for the explosion of labor actions is historically significant and something we really can't miss. More and more people demand fairness in terms of relations between owners and workers. Maybe as we move forward, it's not corporate America, uber alles after all. 
And certainly the labor movement in America uh, has a long, not always favorable history. In the 1960s, as the protests over America's war intensified, the split between left and labor unions was dramatic. At least the labor leader, George Meany, the AFL-CIO leader, uh, supported the war. There were hard hats on one side, long hairs on the other, working men versus elite-seeming college students. What was that reality? Or Tell us about the reality behind that. Sure. So, you know, I do think some of that was uh, real, I'd certainly at the leadership level. I also think some of it was perception. I know that, um, you know, these narratives are are more compelling, especially to locations and television and, and media outlets. It's better to say there's conflict, there's drama, there's one side and the other side. I think actual polling in that era often revealed that uh, working class people were were more against the war. I mean, they were the ones who were sending their um, sons mm-hmm. to die in it. So I think some of that is a little misleading as the framing. But I do think that the leaders of the American labor movement in that time, um, George Meany, as you mentioned, uh, were, they lined up with the government. They supported the war in Vietnam. They supported a lot of... Um, you know, what I would consider to be bad U.S. foreign policy, including uh, the war in Vietnam. And I think that can really be traced back to Taft-Hartley in 1947. You know, it was a a big change that started a couple of decades earlier and was designed to disempower the labor movement, to disempower workers. And I think a lot of those changes go back to, to that period and then carried through and what happened was that there was a, a really deliberate effort to drive uh, radicals, socialists, communists out of later, out of right. leadership right. Um, in those positions, and that was largely successful. And I think that led to a period of, of serious decline for the labor movement, and also a period of tension between, um, you know, new student activists and people who oppose the war and uh, the most visible leaders of, of the labor movement. Well, wouldn't it be nice if we actually learned from that history? Hmm, it could happen. <laughs> it's rare, indeed. You, you refer to the observations of, and I hope I get this name right, Rosalind Wachinich of Philadelphia mm-hmm. back in 1996. Talk about history. What did she see in the labor movement that offered some hope for it as a new instrument for connecting movements for social change with the labor movement? What was different from the face of labor movement in the in the 60s? Sure. So I think what, what Rosalind and a lot of her peers, uh, people who came up in the same era she did and, and became leaders of the labor movement, what they saw then was the election of John Sweeney, which I believe was in 1995 to president of the AFL-CIO. And that was really a sea change. That was another turning point in the history of the American labor movement. Um, John Sweeney, he ran on bringing women and minorities into the fold, putting them in leadership positions. He made alli- He built alliances with civil rights groups, with students, with um academics, college professors, and also with clergy, which is kind of an interesting part of the story. And he came in and wanted to bring us into a new era and kind of unite these social movements uh, with the labor movement. I mean, there 
there wasn't always a division, right? I mean, if you go back, there's so much history and I don't, my article barely scratched the surface on this, honestly, but, and there have been different waves and different patterns and sort of recurring moments. But I think in the nineties, that was a time when there was this real opportunity and a lot of young people were very hopeful that these movements could come together and be sort of maximally effective. And to to drive out the left, I, I understand, you know, in the 50s, there was this fear of communism and the labor movement wanted to distance itself. But as, as we look back, uh, you know, that has been, let's face it, the base, or not the base, a significant part of the labor union, the left and labor it's like a natural uh, coalition, and maybe it's happening now with all these strikes that have been remarkably successful and had a heck of a lot of public support, which is really interesting to see. What yeah. current crises in this moment do you think serve to create an environment of urgency that contributes to labor activism? I think that's a great question. In my book, uh, The Rise of a New Left, which I wrote for Verso, which came out last year, you know, I everybody that I spoke to for that book, I would say, um, not everybody, I'll, I take that bad. I, I'd say about 90% of the people I spoke to for that book were from immigrant families, the children of immigrants, or in some other way precarious, right? So my book is mm. a lot of, includes a lot of interviews with young people, mostly people younger than I am. I'm about to be 41. Uh, these These people were all in their 20s, early 20s to mid 30s. And, you know, they had, uh, there were a lot of people who expected life to go one way and sort of did everything right, you know, went to, went to school, did all of the things that we grow up hearing will lead to a um, upper middle class life, right? And, and lead to a good secure job and good pay. And I think a lot of what happened is that people my age and younger didn't have that experience. Right. You know, the millennials are now um, on track to have worse outcomes, have had worse outcomes than their parents, have less security, mm. less money than our parents did at this age, uh, certainly less job security than our parents had at this age. And so that's one of the big shifts. And that's very, was very, very apparent in research in my book that that was part of what was going on. And the writer Alyssa Court has a really great uh, phrase about some of the recent strike waves that's mu museum workers, academics, huh. people in these kind of um, professions that have some social status but don't really – are not, no longer secure and no longer pay decent livings, right? So there's a wave in that sector, and that really showed that people – uh, taught those people, okay, look, you're you're also precarious, you're also at risk. And I think Rosalind Wuchinich put it really well in my story. She said something to, to the effect of those people woke up and realized that they were also getting screwed, right? Mm -hmm. And so that, that created this feeling of solidarity and the support for uh, working class, for the labor movement and for unions and for strikes and for standing up to the bosses because people understood a, a new a new group of people really began to understand um, what was at stake for them as well. Uh, be still my beating heart. This is good to hear as an older guy uh, who's who's been around for a long time. And when you think about it, you know, so many people, they play by the rules, they work hard, 
they've got an education, and still not getting ahead. And that, I do believe, uh, the Democratic Party didn't touch that in 2016. They were too busy uh, raking in the money from the the corporate uh, uh, and wealthy uh, contributors and missed that. And I do think that rather unintentionally helped the election of Donald Trump because people were frustrated and there was no particular uh, political uh, outlet happening for them and and connecting with that. And here we are, and something is happening. Uh, And I I think it can be a good thing. And in the 60s, I can't get away from the 60s. What can I tell you? In the (laughs) 60s, chief executives of major corporations were paid only 15 times as much as their average workers, compared with more than 200 times what they're paid, what the average workers are paid now. This, not surprisingly, has been called the second Gilded Age. It may even be more extreme than the first Gilded Age of the 1890s. There are those who have enjoyed great political power who breathe oxygen rather happily into this stark economic spread. They don't mind making it worse uh, for everybody except the super-rich. The less visible corporate power is behind the Republican Party. That's, you know, it's not the working people that are that have the money that are keeping the Republican Party alive. It's the big corporate powers. Right. What's left of the working class sees this. And in recent years, yeah, we've seen a lot of strikes, teachers' strikes. One of the more uh, significant organized labor wins was notably a big settlement by the United Parcel Service with the Teamsters, who represent uh, more than 300,000 employees, that was pretty good. There was the Hollywood writer's strike, which ended with the win for the writers. The actor's strike, not quite yet settled, but after the first time a sitting U.S. president ever joined workers on a picket line, the United Auto Workers just won a really significant victory, reaping major benefits for auto workers. Something is happening here. But given that unions now represent only about 7% of private sector workers. What do these results say about the mood of the country when it comes to the long-established economic injustice we've seen for so long? Given that union density is so low, how can the fact that there's this mood of the country that's supportive of workers going on strike, clearly supportive, uh, how can this start to affect the the economic injustice that we've seen for so long? A few different things are happening. I do think there's a huge appetite for change, um, not just in this country, but around the world. One of the best books I read in the last six months was a a book by Vincent Bevins, a journalist who he's been a foreign correspondent for the LA Times, as well as the Washington Post. And he's lived in Brazil and Chile and Indonesia and reported on all of those places. And he wrote a really great book called If We Burn, which is about the mass protests around the globe in the last 10 years. And it's sort of a great companion to my book because my book focuses on mass movements um, in the United States in the same period, in the last 10 years, basically. But his perspective is essentially that we saw these huge mass mobilizations around the world, hundreds of thousands of people in the streets, and it didn't really work. And in he he's focused on 10 different countries, including Egypt, Turkey, uh, uh, you know, Chile, Brazil. 
And he says in seven out of 10 of those places, things actually got worse. That's sort of his essential thesis. And I think part of what is happening is that there is this new sentiment and this hunger for change. And we need to address a lot of problems in our society and fix a lot of inequities. But that's not necessarily accompanied by a clear path forward, right? And we, mm-hmm. if you don't have, if you have mil- millions of people in the street and no sort of uh-huh. framework for that, no infrastructure and no sense of what's going to come after that. I mean, part of Vincent Bevins' thesis is that if you get rid of the existing power structure, but you don't know what's going to fill it, right? You don't know what's going to step into that vacuum. It could go badly in any number of ways. So I think some of that is an organizing challenge and we're, uh, that we are trying to figure out uh, collectively, right? And have had some some success in figuring out some ways forward, but it's not perfect and we're learning and we're making mistakes. And a lot of my book is about the um, disappointment, the disillusionment that a lot of people my age and younger feel having gone through two, two distinct waves of Black Lives Matter you know, a- ongoing climate catastrophe that's just getting worse, worse and worse every day. We're seeing the evidence all around us, a gun violence crisis in this country that obviously is not uh, being effectively addressed and has been pretty critical for, for decades now. So there are a lot of problems that are just not getting solved. And I think that is part of what's happening. And people are and the good news is that there are more people than ever who are interested in solving them and interested in committing their lives to solving them. You remind me of a couple of good old quotes, don't mourn, organize, we need to get organized. And another quote from uh, Will Rogers is, ah, I'm not a member of any organized party. I'm a Democrat. Right. right. <laughs> That's a, but it's opportunities. And I think about the uh, awareness that came with the Occupy Wall Street movement. That, that awareness is there. But the the organization was was lacking. Where they went from there didn't really happen. But it's still part of the consciousness. And maybe that's something that, as organizing improves, uh, it can we can uh, latch onto and and connect with it somehow. I think so. And I think also that you're seeing the legacy of a lot of these earlier movements. I mean, the uh, you mentioned the UAW strike earlier. I think that's such an important thing to pay attention to. And Sean, Sean Fain, the um, head of the UAW, he's been really an inspiration to me personally and to a lot of people who are sympathetic to or part of the labor movement. He has been uncompromising. He's and he's used a lot of that language and that framing. I think that's like very directly uh, related to Occupy and also to the Bernie campaign. But he understands that it works. He understands that it's popular. I think that being militant in the way he has been and also being very clear about his demands and about what the, you know, laying out the case in simple language and repeating it and mm-hmm. sticking to the point, I think he's been tremendously effective. Um, yeah, he's, he's sorry, been very effective. Sean Fain, of, head of the UAW, and he, yeah. he said... I love this quote. If we're going to take on the billionaire class and rebuild the economy so that it starts to work for the benefit of the many and not the few, then it's important that we not only strike, but strike together. Great quote mm-hmm. from him. And if you just tuned in, dear listener, we're talking with uh, Raina Lipsitz, who has written an article for The New Republic, one of the great magazines out there, the emerging coalition that could revitalize our politics. Hope, dare I say hope? 
<laughs> I don't know. And and as your article points out, uh, groups like the Democratic Socialists of America have made inroads, and you and I both belong to the DSA. Still, as you note, know, some labor still view it with suspicion. Might one example be the issue of climate change? Certainly, coal workers and other unions uh, are very suspicious of, of climate change. How does this in particular play out with Older white working men who have been the backbone of the traditional U.S. labor movement. There's this, you know, climate, uh, securing this climate, uh, uh, you know, and getting over the crisis is a big deal. But I'm, I'm not sure how it's connecting with the older traditional white men in the labor movement and if that's a big deal or not. Sure. I, you know, I think it is important. It's certainly you have to bring in everybody and older white men are a big uh, group. They just make up a, a large part of the population. So I would never say that they should be yeah, true. discounted uh, or ignored. I mean, they, they can't be. Whether you, whether you think they should or not, they have a lot of power. Um, and so I think, you know, and, and some of them are uh, our comrades. I mean, some of them are trying are are important allies in in all of these fights. So, I write in my book about one of Hillary Clinton's twenty missteps she made in 2016, and and that was um, I think it was a CNN town hall. She was talking about climate policy, and she said we're going to put a lot of coal miners and coal companies out of business. Right. Now that quote that quote was taken out of context. She she wasn't saying you know. I can't wait to screw over these uh, work workers. What she was saying actually was she was acknowledging that those jobs were disappearing in part due to, you know, an environmentally necessary transition away from fossil fuels. But she'd also said in that appearance, we, we need to make it clear. We don't want to forget the coal miners. We don't want to move. We don't want to abandon the people who did the best they could to produce the energy that we've relied on. Now, she at the time should released a 30, $30 billion plan that called for increased job training, uh-huh. small business development, infrastructure investment, sought to protect minors' health care. I, I think none of that stuff was really sufficient. Um, you know, obviously it's better than nothing, but right. I think that part of the problem and part of the uh, thing that needs to be addressed both by the climate justice movement and by the labor movement is really explaining to workers that we're not going to abandon them either, that you can't have climate justice without worker justice. I mean, that is the language and the framing that groups like Sunrise are using. And I think is, you know, it's one thing to say that sort of theoretically, it's another thing to really concretely demonstrate to people that you are not going to sell them out. And so I think that's the part that, that has to happen um, that hasn't quite happened yet. And it's reasonable to be, skeptical when you hear stuff about you just sort of vague promises of a just transition, right? Unless you're going to really put money behind that, it's a meaningless, it's an empty thing. But I think that the people, I know that the people who are organizing behind um, a Green New Deal and also behind Build Back Better, which of course didn't didn't happen in the form, uh, anything like the comprehensive form that we wanted that would have been useful and done the most good for the most people. But the whole point of that organizing was to connect those struggles and to say, we're not going to sell out workers. We can't have one without the other. Um, Excellent point. And, you know, if, you know, putting the, you know, coal workers out of a job is one thing, 
but creating new jobs, for example, in the uh, surging uh, solar, you know, the photovoltaic field, is uh, that's a reality. There's a lot of new jobs that are happening there. And as you say, so if, if we can connect the worker justice and climate justice movements together, yow. That is powerful indeed. It's very and we're and we're doing that in real time. I mean, that's yeah. the, also the good news is that in New York, where I live, um, there was a huge victory at the state level. Build Public Renewables Act. That was yes. a coalition of Democratic Socialists of America and a bunch of other climate groups. And I I believe Working Families was also involved in that coalition. Uh, and we got that done at the state level. That that's essentially the New York State version of a Green New Deal, and that absolutely did have union support and labor buy-in. And it's because the bill, Kathy Hochul tried to strip, the governor of New York mm-hmm. at the last minute wanted to strip labor provisions out of that bill. Mm-hmm. And the a- activists behind, and she said, I'll sign it, I'll get it over the finish line, but you have to take out these worker protections. And the coalition behind that bill said no. Nothing to do and it. That, Right. And and we got it done with the worker provisions. So I think that's an important lesson in solidarity and commitments that we make to working people and really hanging together to get the best possible version over the finish line. I mean, there are things I think in politics, there are compromises that are worth making sometimes. And I think there are other compromises that are never worth making. And you, it's never worth saying we're going to sell out this this particular group of people to get a lesser bill, that you can't do that and have an effective coalition. And I think that's one of the big lessons we've been learning in the last uh, 10 years. Well, I may be an old veteran of, of politics, but uh, you've certainly learned quite a few lessons that it took me a long time to learn. <laughs> uh, and it, unlike other Western European cultures, there's rarely, if ever been, a sense of the working class in the U.S. It was certainly tried in the early part of the 20th century, and it had some success with the likes of Eugene Debs and others. But the, the myth of upward mobility has, has replaced that. Pe- people don't want to feel like, you know, it's like people in, in lower income areas still feel like well, I'm I'm going to make it. I'm going to do it. Uh, there is this upward mobility. I'm not like them, those other people in the working class. I'm going to get out of it. Uh, working people often put out political signs in favor, you know, on their homes, on their trailers, in favor of candidates who are wealthy and whose policies really hurt the people putting out the signs. And many working people believe that they themselves will be rich someday. And they, they have no class consciousness, unlike uh, long tradition in Western Europe. With this in mind, centrists within the Democratic Party have shied away consistently from militant organized labor, and their campaign contributions have demonstrated as much. Tell us about, please, about the political tension they have been navigating on this matter. Sure. So, I, you know, those are all important um, sort of moments that you've identified and trends you've identified. I went to a memorial service recently for the great, the late, great Barbara Ehrenreich, um, somebody that I tremendously admired. uh, And one of the most moving things that they said at that, at that event was there was a 
you know, reel of Barbara Ehrenreich speaking at various um, events over the years. And she said that she'll never, she never refers to people as unskilled workers, mm-hmm. right? Every, mm-hmm. every uh, job requires skills and requires, um, you know, yeah, did every job teaches you something, every job requires something from you. And I thought that was a really important thing to remember that we don't hear a lot of anymore. I, I think that you're right, that the focus has been on sort of pretending that everybody can just spontaneously lift themselves out of the working class rather than say, saying that there's no shame in being a member of the working class, that those are good, important, necessary jobs. I mean, we saw this during the pandemic, right? That yeah. in, in fact, uh, un, quote unquote, unskilled labor, things we think of as, as menial or not important, in, in fact, are the, the most important jobs and the only jobs that were truly essential, the only jobs that we needed people to keep doing. And that should be both a humbling moment for the rest of us, for people like me, who spend our time sitting around, you know, thinking and writing, we should be asking ourselves, is is my job necessary? What is my job? What am I contributing to the world? While the people who are making stuff and keeping the trains running and keeping groceries on the shelves, those are the people we actually need to live, to survive as a, as a society. So those are important lessons to keep in mind. And I do think that, um, you can't have this kind of solidarity that we need to move forward on multiple fronts without an understanding, without really valuing the people who are doing that work and seeing them as equal to the rest of us and not not people who should be, I don't know, try, taking out loans, trying to go to college, trying to get out of that work. We need to pay those people what they're worth. We need them to be real valued jobs and we just need to see each other as um essentially equal in all ways of of equal value yeah they shouldn't be getting 200 times less than the top ceos that's for sure and excuse me many things about the pandemic uh, you know what it did to our history are just now being uh we're just being made aware of and as you point out that that's one of them that we realize because of the pandemic these are not unskilled these are people we depend on and this is the real backbone of our economy it's not the ceos who are you know buying yacht after yacht uh who who you know <laughs> uh, it's the people who are making these things you know nurses and working people who clean up uh, this is the important stuff and i think i think optimistically people are starting to realize that and the pandemic pointed that out like probably nothing else would have <laughs> yeah Uh, Absolutely. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about keeping democracy alive with a energized working, uh, working people, labor, left coalition, that there's a new possibility. Our guest is uh, Raina Lipsitz, who's written an article in The New Republic, the emerging coalition that could revitalize our politics. And you talk about Barbara Ehrenreich. I did have a chance to meet her once, and she wrote that book I will recommend, Nickeled and Dimed. Uh, very, uh, an important thinker in American history, no question about that. Barbara Ehrenreich, uh, who passed away too soon, of course. One example you point to is, is there are some good things that have happened 
in New York. Another one is the uh, the, the public power uh, legislation, which is uh, granting, enabling electric power to be more controlled by people who buy the electricity. What a concept. And of course, you had former Governor Andrew Cuomo talk about, he is former governor uh, for a lot of reasons. Talk about his relationship with the Working Families Party. Not all listeners have heard of this party. Do tell us about that. How did this schism with the centrist Cuomo ultimately affect the power of the Working Families Party? Sure. So the Working Families Party was founded in in 1998 in New York, but it now really does have a presence um, all over the country and a a bunch of states uh, as well as New York. You know, it's operating, I think, in about 20 states and has has had a real effect on politics. And I'd say at least seven of those places, including uh, Pennsylvania, very much so. So they've really grown um, and they've really come into their own in a lot of ways. And I think that Maurice Mitchell, who's the national director of the WFP, I was speaking to him for my article and he said something to the effect of when you look at where former governor Andrew Cuomo is now and where the Working Families Party is, that tells you something, you know, I mean, the the WFP has flourished and risen in power and influence and gotten a lot of concrete wins and Andrew Cuomo uh, resigned in disgrace. So I would just like to talk a little bit about some of what they've done. I mean, the sure. WFP was part of a, you know, got New York was one of the first states to pass a $15 minimum wage in large part thanks to striking fast food workers, but also because the WFP forced Cuomo to back a $15 minimum wage while he was still um you know, a governor. And then the WFP was also part of a coalition that took out the IDC, which was the Independent Dem- Democratic Conference, which was a group of legislators in Albany, um, essentially who were running as Democrats, but but working with Republicans and working with Cuomo. Uh, WFP also worked in coalition with unions in Connecticut and Rhode Island to get paid sick days in those states. I think that's a hugely important policy that, you know, obviously improved life for hundreds of thousands of people. I mean, that's, um, that's just huge that you, that you didn't have guaranteed paid sick days. And now you do in those States, uh, in New Jersey, the WFP worked with CWA and SEIU 32 BJ to put paid sick leaves on the ballot in six six cities. That was during Chris Christie's administration, uh, and they've also fought really hard to back the green energy provisions in the Inflation Reduction Act, which which did get passed and was a a victory of the Biden administration. Um, you know, I also think that there are people who wouldn't be in office today without the WFP's organizing. There wouldn't be a mayor, Brandon Johnson, in Chicago without yes. the Chicago Teachers Union and SEIU and the WFP. Um, there wouldn't be Jamal Bowman in Congress. There wouldn't be uh, Greg Kazar in Texas, the congressman in Texas. And, you know, these are just really important concrete victories that I think don't get enough attention. And because the story is, it's just a more interesting story to say, right. oh, there's tension or people are fighting or there's infighting and the coalition is being frayed. I think in a lot of ways, the coalition is stronger than than it's been in decades. And so that's the good news. And I would just say... 
really quickly, I wanted to return to um, Sean Fain of UAW. I was really amused to see a couple of days ago a story in Fast Company, uh, and the headline was What American CEOs Can Learn from UAW President Sean Fain. And I, I, I can't, I don't think that's a headline. It's not a headline I can imagine having seen 10, <laughs> 20, sure. 30 years ago. I mean, it's a business uh, press. It's a business trade publication. And they're saying, hey, CEOs, you need to learn from from this guy. I, I think that's a tremendous victory um, for workers, for the UAW, uh, for all of us. I mean, I, I hope they don't take any of the advice because it would help them to be effective. And I'd rather that <laughs> working people be effective. But uh, true, but it's it is about the power of the people, and and a lot of uh, you know in the past no oh, twenty thirty years or so, a lot of people since the protests on the war in Vietnam did end the war in Vietnam. There's been a substantial effort to convince people that we don't have power. Well, guess what? We do have power. Okay. We absolutely do. And I'm reminded of the uh, situation where uh, head of the uh, Pullman Porters Union, A. Philip Randolph, went to President Roosevelt uh, asking for uh, equal employment opportunities and to desegregate the armed forces. And FDR, I can't remember the exact quote, said something like, yeah, I'm with you. I want to do it. Now go out there and make me do it. Right. That's exactly what works. That's what works. That's, right. That's when we make me do it. And if if the top CEOs are starting to realize, hey, we need to listen to this, that's not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing. And another powerful uh, uh, leader uh, of the uh, labor movement, of course, is Sarah Nelson, a flight attendant, but she's international president of the Association of Flight Attendants, uh, CWA, with the AFL-CIO. She's got some uh, tremendous power. And she recognize, you know, in her industry, uh, there are, you know, like every industry, really, there's a lot of LGBT plus people. And she has, uh, you know, that, that's that been, that's part of, that's an essential part of the movement, I think. Your thoughts? Uh, yeah, I, I think so. Absolutely. And I, I'm a huge Sarah Nelson fan. She's spoken at, yes, um, at a couple of DSA conventions and dinners, I think. Um, I don't know if she's actually a member or not, but she's certainly been supportive of the Democratic Socialists of America. And I think that she's one thing that's so exciting about her is that she is this visible face of the American labor movement and yes. she's a woman. And that's, you know, that I mean, that kind of representation, especially in a movement that is so often caricatured as uh, just about white men or just for yeah. white men or, or just involving white men. Um, it's important to see a woman in that role. I also think that she is somebody who's been uniquely effective at um, exactly what we've been talking about, at, at bringing together different social justice movements with the movements for economic justice and for workers' rights. So I, she's someone I admire hugely. So it's all coming together. I mean, there's this... A, 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 a union, shall we say, of people in various different movements that are coming together that are, you know, to keep them separate is one thing, but to have them join, have us join together with one another, that's pretty powerful. And if the Democratic Party can pay attention to that and not be afraid of it and not just be like, oh, no, you're going to interrupt our flow of campaign cash, 
the, the, what the campaign cash is there for is to win votes, and votes come from each individual person. And there's a lot of people who support you know, economic justice, who are really concerned about economic injustice and concerned about the climate change and concerned about lots of different things that all go together. So this could be a an emerging coalition that could revitalize our politics, which is the title of your article, uh, Raina Lipsitz, in uh, The New Republic. I, I, I do see a problem that there's the left's focus on LGBT and reproductive rights. Some working class men see this attention as alien from their issues. Uh, as you write, the narrow wokeness of academic and corporate culture canon often does alienate working class people, regardless of race and gender. So how big a problem is this, seeing it as a you know, an issue, it's not my issue. I'm a, I'm a working person, you know, LGBT and reproductive rights, that's not my issue. How big a problem is this? Is there a new narrative from labor that is connecting with and maybe effectively taking on this problem? I, I do think so, because I think there's a new awareness around both of those issues. I mean, particularly abortion rights, as there's been a lot of good writing in the last 10 years about uh, why and how reproductive justice is a is an issue of economic justice as well, right? I think people understand that pretty intuitively. I mean, if you can't control the size of your family, you can't um, you can't control anything, right? And you and you can't provide for your children effectively, and you can't do the things that you need to do as a as an adult person with a family you can take care of in a functioning society. And I think people understand that, um, you know. The wokeness, the point I was making about wokeness is not that I think we need to define our terms, right? I mean, a lot of the time people say woke to just mean, oh, talking about women's issues or talking about uh, gay liberation or something. And that's not, I, you know, social movements are important. Social movements for anybody's rights are important and need to be part of this broader movement. Uh, what I mean by the narrow wokeness of academic and corporate culture is kind of basically etiquette and and sort of things that people do in meetings that other people may not ever have been exposed to or heard about that can be just sort of alienating and boring. You know, I, I know I had a friend who was pretty critical of Democratic Socialists of America because he didn't like how, you know, so much of the meeting would be taken up by um you know, sort of saying your pronouns or progressive stack is another example that he had. Uh, that's where, you know, you call on people, basically you call on people in the order of their oppression. So women get to speak first yeah. or, or are called on first or whatever. I, none of that stuff offends me or feels um, like so terrible to me. I think it comes from a good place. It comes from a, a place of wanting people to be equal and wanting to, hear all the voices in a room and those are good things. Um, but I think that there's a way that you can talk about it that makes people feel included and welcome. And then on the other hand, there's a way you can talk about it that makes them feel stupid and out of touch. Right. And you don't want to do, you don't want to do the stupid and out of touch version of that. I actually think DSA has been pretty good about this. The meetings I've attended uh, have been run by people who are very committed to making it a welcoming space and not, um, talking about things that 
without explaining them, not using acronyms that maybe not everybody knows what that means. There are certain kind of uh, communication tools that are more common in the corporate world, like Slack channels. I know that's something that older people and, and other people in the room didn't necessarily know how to use that. You know, some of this is not, it's just not the big deal it's made out to be. And I think that there are ways to bring people in on new technology, on new terminology, on new social conventions, uh, and it can be done. But I also think that the, fo- you know, I've, I've always admired this about Bernie Sanders. You you have to talk about things in very broad, accessible terms that everybody understands, that everybody uh, immediately gets and can can buy in, feel mm-hmm. some sense of investment in, right? And so Bernie is somebody who part of what made him such a great, makes him such a great communicator is that he has that. He just, he goes out there, he says the same three things, you know, in every interview. He's very on message. He's very clear. I think a lot of, uh, you know, the New York Times, Washington Post, their top reporters have a lot of complaints about this because it makes for kind of boring copy. You know, they're they're always (laughs) trying to get him to say, uh, talk about his personal life. They're always trying to sort of throw him off with these other questions that he's not interested in answering. And I think it, I think it's made him hugely effective. And I think that's something that the left and the labor movement can and have learned from is how to just kind of be on message, have your three points that you're making, bring everybody in and don't use language that um, is, is inaccessible, obfuscates what you mean is not clear to everybody who's there. Um, yeah, you got to keep it straightforward. And Bernie has been an expert at that for 50 years or so. And he just stays on message. And I did find it, fa- I'm, I'm here in New Hampshire, we have the New Hampshire primary. And I did find it fascinating in, in 2016, that there were the same people were like, uh, I like Bernie, I like Trump, I like Bernie, I like Trump, because they're both speaking to one was a liar (laughs) but but the other was telling the truth they're both speaking to the frustration that leads to left and right populism and there's a long tradition of left populism in this country people don't know that but populism you know comes from people feeling frustrated that they work hard they play by the rules and they don't get ahead but uh, uh, the left can and is really speaking to this and the labor movement is certainly uh, connecting with this now like I've never seen before. It's very exciting. Yeah. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is uh, Raina Lipsitz, who's written a very interesting piece in The New Republic, The Emerging Coalition That Could Revitalize Our Politics. And divide and conquer is an old uh, strategy. Uh, and you say the diversity of America's working class is a strength, but it's also an opportunity for exploitation divisions among workers, real, perceived, and imposed, have made segments of the labor vulnerable to the right. Please say more. Sure. So, I mean, a lot of the stuff we've we've been talking about um, already, and I I think it's so important to keep talking about it, but worker, to the extent that you can fracture the broad mass of people, right? There's really two kinds of people uh, there are people who own the companies and people who have to sell their time to those companies, right? That's, and ve- it's a very small number of people who actually own 
corporations and then the rest of us work for right. these places. Right. So, but you can pretty easily split up the broader group by saying, well, those guys over there are getting more than you. I mean, this is literally what the automakers did, right? They introduced two tiers of uh, wage scales. So some workers were doing exactly the same job, getting paid half of what the guy next to them is getting paid who came in at an, in an earlier era. That's a way, that's what I mean by imposed divisions where companies are able to um, divide people up into different groups and make them feel like they should be fighting each other instead of banding together. Uh, yeah. You know, there's also racial divisions, there's gender divisions, there's all kinds of sort of visible differences. Um, and the people who benefit from focusing on those differences instead of focusing on what we have in common and what we all need, uh, the people who benefit from that are the the company guys, the owner, the executives, yeah, and the absolutely. people who own the companies. They're yeah. not us. And I think we've seen that over and over again. You know, you mentioned Trump, the sort of crossover between people who like Bernie and people who like Trump. I think what that's about is that, you know, Trump was... Well, in a lot of ways, he ran he ran to the left of a lot of other Republicans, he did. right? He did, yes. I mean, he was talking about uh, workers' rights. He was full of, you know, he was full of crap, obviously, but right. he was saying a lot of things that people wanted to hear that they hadn't heard in a long time. Right. And he was he was skeptical of NAFTA. He was saying we shouldn't have gone into Iraq. You know, things that are are majority opinions that people agree with and believe and think makes a lot of sense. Um, he was also mocking and humiliating more conventional Republicans who are not popular, who people don't like. And that the reason that they that they win and that they have any control in Congress is because they gerrymandered the entire country and they've like done all kinds of anti-democratic workarounds to maintain power because they can't actually win elections. Right. And then when you now what they're trying to do is undermine the referendum process so that because they've seen that when you put abortion on the ballot, when you say to people in a particular right. state, do you think women should have abortion rights? People say, yes, they should. Absolutely. And that's true. That's true in red states. Yep. That's true in all kinds of states with abortion bans. So that's why now the Republicans are saying, well, I don't think we should let people vote directly on this anymore. <laughs> and they're trying to raise the, I mean, they used that's to call for that. <laughs> Right. And so I think that Trump, uh, you know, this is, these divisions do work and that's why they try to do them because yeah. it's just an easier, uh, it's a good way to weaken what would otherwise be really broad and effective coalitions. And so I think that on the left, that is something that the left has been doing a better job of certainly did very well in 2020. I, you know, I myself would not say that uh, electing Joe Biden, I think electing Joe Biden was important and it was, clearly better than the alternative. I don't, I don't think it in itself was enough to, oh, to no. change the rest of society, but there were there were very broad coalitions of people who came together across serious divisions, including serious ideological divisions to get out there and get out the vote for Joe Biden. It, and yeah, at least there's some possibility and he's doing some really good things on domestic issues. I must say foreign policy, eh, that never seems to change, but right. yeah. And I, I do find it fascinating. The tactics of the right these days, they can't 
win, I don't believe, on economic issues, on their points about the economy. Uh, so they have this culture war, and the Trumpist right is very actively pitting right-wing evangelical parents against teachers' ability to teach and do their job. But my my sense is it ain't working for them. It's working for us that teachers are getting more support now that, you know, this uh, uh, Moms for Liberty nonsense, you know, where, where parents get to dictate what books there can be in the school. Uh, do you see that as well? And how significant is that relative to the to their tactic of a culture war? Sure. I think I think that's a great question. And I actually I'm working on something else at the moment uh, for a publication of uh, called The Public Eye, which is put out by a group called Political Research Associates. And it's about far right organizing in Erie County in western New York, which is where I grew up. I grew up in Buffalo. And, um, you know, there, I was writing a lot about and researching these groups that have really gained some traction there. Moms for Liberty is one of them. There's a an active chapter in Erie County. One thing I found out in looking into these groups is that uh, groups like Moms for Liberty in particular seem to have caught on mainly in suburbs and mainly in areas, disproportionately in areas with declining white populations. So uh -huh. it's tied in in some way, obviously, to, to racial grievance and to fears about... Um, fears of being displaced, fears of losing what you've always had. Right. And it, and I think the, so that's one piece of it. That's why the critical race theory became such a big oh, right. uh, flashpoint because there are people who get really worried about that and feel very threatened by it, whether they should or, or shouldn't, or whether that's, you know, based on reality or not um, that that's a feeling that it taps into. And I think the other thing it taps into is this moral panic about sex ed in schools, which which at this point is at least a 30-year-old discussion, probably longer than that. And I remember I testified before the school board in Buffalo when I was a kid, when I was like 12, on behalf of comprehensive sex ed, because there were various uh, local efforts then to, to get that curriculum out of the schools, to not be able to talk to kids about safe sex or AIDS or any of that stuff. Um, I think that the right's essential playbook, it's really fascinating to me how little it changes and has changed over the decades, but they do vary the issues slightly depending on what's in the news, you know? So instead of for, for a long period there, it was war on gay marriage. Uh, they lost that fight, you know, at least for now they've lost that fight. And so they've pivoted to attacking trans transgender children, you know, which I, I think is, kind of a bizarre fight to pick. I don't I don't think it's been very popular. I think people intuitively understand when you're when you're picking on children and it's not a good look. Um, but I do think so I don't think it's working in a broader sense. I don't think it's been persuading anyone or really bringing anyone new into the fold. But how it does work on the right is that it really mobilizes right wing base. It really gets people mostly religious Christians who feel alienated in various ways um, from their surrounding communities, maybe feel looked down on by their neighbors or by people in cities. And it really motivates those people to not only participate in politics, not only vote, but get out there and run for office, right? So where they've really had success, Moms for Liberty and, and groups, similar groups, 
they've had success in getting people to run for school board, which can be a uh, stepping stone to higher office. So it's worth paying attention to for sure. I, I think it's just really fascinating how some of this plays out. And you're right. I think some of the particularly the book ban stuff, I think, has, has backfired a little bit. But Yeah, I, I, I do think so. And one thing that it does seem that the right has learned from history is that use fear. Fear is, there's nothing as powerful as fear. Manipulate fear. Fear of the other, the scary, unknown other people invading America from the South. I mean, heck, that's been used throughout the, you know, the early part of the 20th century. Uh, and, and fear of the other. But it's not working because we're starting to recognize, I mean, they, they're dropping it, you know, the whole... Uh, uh, I don't even remember the name of it. The thing about uh, teaching uh, uh, that about about racism there uh, that critical race yeah, yeah critical race yeah. there. You don't. I, the reason I sort of forgot is because they dropped it. It's not right. working. It's not working. I love the fact that writing in the New York Times the other day, uh, Paul Krugman uh, said the political ground is shifting. Public approval of unions is at its highest point since 1965. Something is happening here, and there's still work to do. I mean, Amazon, which is huge, uh, everybody buys from it. It's like there's no choice. They have Big Brother-type work conditions, uh, and it's not unionized. Starbucks is starting to unionize. But what do you see happening from here on out, and what can average people do? I think that the main challenge going forward is to figure out how we can connect what majorities of people want with what we get, right? And so one thing I noticed in writing my book was that older people often have a point of view on the on these issues and social movements that go it's essentially like oh we Actually, Joe Biden has said this publicly on a couple of occasions, but we did civil rights movement, we marched against the war, and we ended the war, and we got the Civil Rights Act, and we got the Voting Rights Act. Now, I think that's a little a little bit reductive, and I think it, it leaves out a lot of other stuff that was happening, a lot of other reasons that the war ended, a lot of other reasons that that major federal legislation was, was able to get through in, in that era. However, the important part is that people felt like their actions were connected to results and like the government was in some way accountable to them. People my age, people younger than me, don't really have that sense at all, right? They've seen multiple mobilizations. They've seen the largest climate, climate uh, strike, climate action in history in 2019, uh, two different waves of Black Lives Matter, you know, mass uprisings the summer of 2020. Like when I was when I was in college, anti-Iraq uh, war organizing that that mobilized millions of people and didn't stop the war. But so it does matter. It does matter. It, but we, it does matter. It does matter because it's cumulative, because it's building something, because it's building on other things, and because you learn from each action. So the point, my point, is not that mass mobilizations don't matter. But my point is that we do have to get serious about connecting the action and the expression of our our anger and our our policy demands and, you know, connecting that to real concrete wins. And that that's that's a very uh, difficult thing to figure out. And it depends 
always depends on other conditions and things that we don't have control over. We are, we are, we are winning getting, some. We are winning we are, some, and it's important are. to point that out. We've come to the end of our show. Our guest has been Raina Lipsitz, who's written in The New Republic, The Emerging Coalition That Could Revitalize Our Politics. Her book is The Rise of a New Left, How Young Radicals Are Shaping the Future of American Politics. Thank you so much for being with us today and for this very positive uh, uh, viewpoint on what's going on. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. 